Good morning, everyone. I, I have the joy and privilege of filling the pulpit both this week and next week. And because it is the middle of December, I don't want to needlessly offend any traditionalists among us, so we are going to talk on the Incarnation uh, for these weeks. The Incarnation is the buzzword in the church around this time of year, and appropriately so. It is the theological emphasis of Christmas, the birth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, uh, being born as a man. Every year at this time, we narrow the focus of our theology onto this reality, and it is reality. That is really what distinguishes believers from everyone else around Christmas time. Granted, we, we aren't unique in acknowledging this holiday and celebrating this holiday. The vast majority of people in our culture at least acknowledge it to some degree. But for all those outside of Christ, the Christmas season is nothing more than a time of fantasy and myths and tradition and sentimentality. There is no substance. There's no corresponding truth to it. That is why many even allow Jesus to have one of the seats at the table during this month in their world. Uh, They allow him to coexist for a few weeks, but it must be on their terms. They must control the narrative of who Jesus was. For some, he remains a baby in the manger, just year after year after year. He's there. He never leaves, never grows up. He's there with the wise men and the angels and lowly Joseph and Mary. And because of that, they'll tolerate Silent Night. They'll sing away in a manger. They'll come to a church service or two every year. But by and large, they remain indifferent to that harmless, insignificant baby in that manger. But this can't be true of us, God's people, because that's not reality. It's only Christians that have any substance and reality and corresponding theology behind what we're doing in the Christmas season. We celebrate, surely, the history of the Incarnation. We love the details, the history, but we also recognize the theology of it, the truth behind the history. As author Cliff McManus puts it, truth is that which corresponds to reality as defined and determined by God. Truth is that which corresponds to reality as defined and determined by by God. And that's why we can say the most important thing in life is what you believe. And does that belief line up with reality as God declares it so? Well, John, the Apostle John, in his gospel, he wants to ensure we don't miss the reality. We don't miss the truth of the Incarnation. That we don't miss the theological significance of baby Jesus in a manger. John's gospel is sometimes referred to as the theological gospel. And that is certainly the case when it comes to the doctrine of the incarnation. Because what other gospel writers like Matthew and Luke, for instance, what they explain by way of historical narrative, historical details, John compresses the birth of Jesus Christ into one succinct and yet incredibly profound statement, the Word became flesh. The Word became flesh. That's the passage we're going to be looking at this week and next week, Lord willing, John 1, 14 to 18. So turn your attention to John 1. 
beginning in verse 14, and I'll read the passage for us. <clears throat> John 1:14, "And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth." John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Well, in these few weeks we have together, we're going to look at six realities about the divine word stimulating our worship this Christmas season. Six realities about the divine word stimulating our worship this Christmas season. We'll look at three of them today and three of them next week. We're going to begin this morning by looking at the first reality, and that is the embodiment of the word. The embodiment of the word. Verse 14, and the word became flesh. Now, we're going to have to get pretty precise and detailed in our explanation of this reality uh, this morning. But before we even get into that, let's first note just who or what exactly became flesh. What's interesting here is that in verse 14, for the first time since verse 1, the Word appears. Now, we know that the Word in John's prologue here is clearly referring to the Son of God, Jesus Christ. There's no mystery. There's no debate about that. But why does John use that title, the Word, <clears throat> the Logos in Greek? Well, the Word of God is the revelation of God. It is the expression of God to His people. It's how God expressed His will, how He communicated. We know God is a talking God, a communicating God, a revealing God. And we, being made in His image, we talk, we communicate, we reveal, we naturally express ourselves. Why is that? Well, because one's communication, one's self-expression is a part of our personhood. And so the Son of God is introduced here as the Word of God because He is the personification of divine revelation. He is the self-revelation of God. And so in verse 14, when you see that Word appear, it's supposed to link us back to the opening verses of John chapter 1 where he referred to the Son of God in this way. So let's briefly look back here. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. So this is the Word in relationship to time. In the beginning, when time began, the Word already was, already existing in a continuous state of existence. Next in verse 1, and the Word was with God. So the Word was eternally distinguishable from God and yet in close fellowship, close-range relationship with God. Next, and the Word was God. So now John's starting to stretch our minds a bit here. Distinct in one sense, but the same in another sense. This isn't saying they're the same person, but rather the Word and God are the same nature, the same essence all that can be said about God can be said about the Word. What God the Father was, the Word was. Well, the next time he uses that title, the Word, is in verse 14. And the Word became flesh. So that means the one who is in a continual state of existence when time began, 
became flesh, the one who was in continual close-range fellowship with God for all of eternity became flesh, the one who was equal with God and divine himself became flesh. This, by the way, is why we refer to this reality as the incarnation, because to incarnate something is to make flesh, to embody in flesh. And when you see that word flesh, you might be tempted to think in terms of, of man's fallenness, man's sinful proclivity, but that's not how John is using this term. John is simply indicating here that the Son of God became a man. The Son of God became a man. Based on that, you might be wondering, well, okay, John, why not just say man? Well, why, why raise the possibility of misunderstanding by saying flesh when you could have just said man? Well, John is writing this gospel at a much later point in New Testament history than many of the other letters, especially the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And because of that, there was a particular error that had gained traction in the New Testament church, and that was the error of Gnosticism. Gnosticism denied the genuine humanity of Jesus because it believed that all physical matter, which would include the human body, was inherently evil. And so it taught a dualism between physical matter, that's all inherently evil, and the spirit, which was good, unaffected by sin, untainted by sin. So Gnostic teachers would affirm some truths about the person of Christ Jesus, but they denied his genuine, true humanity, that the Son of God could not defile himself by becoming a man because it would make him a sinner. It would make him evil. And therefore, they argued he just seemed to have a physical body, but he was more like a ghost, a phantom. And so writing in a historical context like this, you can see why John's use of flesh here is not only appropriate, it's necessary to strike right at the heart of that error that was being promoted in the church. He wants to make certain that the word of verse 1 did indeed take on human flesh. But there could be also an additional reason behind John's use of the word flesh here. Not man's corrupt nature, but man's frailty, man's mortality. The flesh is weak. The flesh is in need of rest. It gets sick. It is subject to pain and misery. Ultimately, its end is physical death. And the divine word, the Son of God, took that on, subjecting himself to all of the limitations that come along with it. This is the reality of the incarnation, the embodiment of the word. Now, this is a precious and familiar doctrine for us as Christians. If you're a Christian, this is a theological refresher. But if you're a Christian, you also recognize it can be a confusing doctrine and a dangerous one. I'll turn to Reformer John Calvin to frame this idea up for us. Concerning the incarnation of Christ Jesus, he writes this, As Satan has made a variety of foolish attempts to overturn sound doctrine by heretics, he has always brought forth one or another of these two errors. Either that he was the Son of God and the Son of Man in so confused a manner that neither his divinity remained entire, nor did he wear the true nature of man, or that he was clothed with flesh so as to be, as it were, double and have two separate persons. In other words, let me put that in my own language. Satan's attempts to corrupt the doctrine of the incarnation 
typically involves the idea that the God-man, Jesus, was a mixture of divinity and humanity so that he was not truly divine nor truly human. Or the divinity and humanity of Jesus were so separated and so distinct that he was actually two persons living inside one body. Those are the two primary and fundamental errors we have to avoid if we want to celebrate Christmas truthfully, according to the Word of God. J.C. Ryle echoes the potential danger and confusion behind this doctrine. He writes this, Next to the doctrine of the Trinity, there is no doctrine on which fallen man has built so many deadly heresies as the incarnation of Christ. But it's really this next sentence that I like because he shepherds us through it. Here's what he says. There is unquestionably much about this union of two natures in one person, which we can't explain. We must be content to believe. There's much we can't understand. But there are some points in the subject of Christ's incarnation which we must hold fast and never let go. That's exactly right. When it comes to the incarnation, Many of the errors exist because we're not content to go as far as Scripture has gone and just leave it with our curiosities unanswered, with mysteries un- unresolved. We push beyond. We, we, want, we want answers where the Bible doesn't give us answers. Now, biblically speaking, we can see that even before the close of the New Testament canon, false teachers were already attacking the incarnation. Same author, different book. Look over at 1 John chapter 4. 1 John 4. Verse 2. First John 4, verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So there is the air of Gnosticism that he's writing against that we just talked about. And the issue is, notice, They must acknowledge the Son of God came in human flesh, meaning he had a real body. And it's so vital, so critical, that if one denies that reality, they're not a believer. They're not of God, John says. Back up to chapter 1, verse 1 of this same epistle. 1 John 1, 1. Notice how he comes out of the gate emphasizing the physical reality. What was from the beginning? What we've heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we've looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. You, you can't touch a phantom. can't touch a ghost. But these false doctrines weren't just limited to the first century of the New Testament. In the first few centuries of church history, there were a variety of similar errors that, that came into the church regarding just what happened when the Word became flesh. We're not going to get too detailed here. I'll just give you a, a sentence or two summary of each one. There was the view that one person, Christ, had a human body but not a human mind or a human spirit. The mind and spirit of Christ were from the divine nature of the Son of God. His body was His human nature. All right, so this view was guilty of bifurcating the two natures of Christ so that it could not be said of him he was truly God and truly man. That's that view, if you're interested, is known as Apollinarianism. Then there was the view that he was two persons in one body rather than one person with two natures. So this, practically this means this. 
when his human person was at work, well, he got sick, tired, he needed naps. He ate, he slept, he got hungry, he prayed. He did all the things that a human would need to do. But sometimes his divine person would take over. He'd flip into God mode and he'd walk on water and do miracles. So under this view, it was taught that in the one body of Jesus, you have two distinct individuals, what one scholar called a schizophrenic Christ competing for supremacy. Then there was the view that denied that the human nature and divine nature in Christ remained fully human and fully divine. They were just kind of caught up into one another, and there was a hybrid. It was kind of a third type of species. Not God, not man, but a God-man, a mixture of both. That was called Eutychianism, and the previous one was Nestorianism. Well, in order to address these various views, a large church council was convened in the city of Chalcedon near Constantinople. The council met in 451 AD for almost a month, and the result was a statement that we know today as the Chalcedon Definition. The statement rightly opposed and guarded against the three views we just highlighted, Apollinarianism, Nestorianism, and Eutychianism. I'm going to read one part of that statement in a moment because I find it helpful. But before I do that, I feel compelled to offer a disclaimer here with how we think about historical creeds and confessions of the faith. If you've been a part of our ministry for any length of time, you know that we are not creedal. We are not confessional. That doesn't mean we're anti-creeds, anti-confessions of the faith. Rather, it is to say that we don't look to church history and historical councils and expressions of the faith to find out what we should believe, to defend what we should believe, to influence our interpretation of, of passages. So in that sense, we're not creedal. We believe they don't have any authority. They're not, they don't have any interpretive authority. But at the same time, historical creeds and confessions can be valuable for us. They can be a helpful tool. For starters, they can demonstrate, here's what the church has always believed. So that if we're using language today that deviates from historical language, or we're teaching something new today that the church has never taught, never believed, these historical expressions of the faith can be helpful guardrails for us. Furthermore, they can offer offer careful and precise articulations of what we've already concluded the Scriptures teach. And that is the case with the Council of Chalcedon. I'm going to read just one part of the statement, and this is answering just how is it the divinity of Christ and the humanity of Christ exist together in the one person of Christ? How is it? How does it work? Here's the statement. They are without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. Four negations are used. Now, you know we're in theological deep water when you can only speak about it with regard to what it's not, right? Not what it is. Here's what it doesn't mean. Those are the deeper end of theology when you can just express, well, I know it doesn't mean this. Without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, and you say, that still doesn't help me define that. All right. Author and theologian Kevin DeYoung summarizes these statements succinctly for us. Here's what he writes. Without confusion, the Lord Jesus Christ is not what you get when you mix blue and yellow together and end up with green. All right, so it's not, it's not a result of mixing a divine and human nature. Secondly, without change, without change. 
In assuming human flesh, the Son of God did not cease to be what He's always been. In other words, the incarnation affected no change, no substantial change in the Son of God. He added humanity to Himself in a way that preserved what He had always been. Third, without division, without division, the two natures of Christ, human and divine, it's not a split in the divine person. He's not half God, half man. Fourth, without separation. The union of the human and divine in the person of Jesus Christ is a real, organic union, not a moral sympathy or relational partnership. In other words, though they remain distinct, they are united in the one person, Jesus Christ. All right, so what do we mean when we say the Word became flesh, He became one person with two natures? Here's what we mean. The one person, Jesus Christ, has the inherent essence, the features of God, the divine nature, and has the inherent essence, the features of man, the human nature. He is no less God because of his humanity and no less human because of his deity. That's why you don't see any passages that say, well, Jesus' human nature did this. His divine nature did this. No, the scriptures all pre- always presented as the one person Christ said this or did this. By the way, isn't this a fun topic to discuss with your children? Right? You ever notice how every discussion with your children about the Trinity or the Incarnation ends up with one parent saying these words, it's time for bed. (laughs) Because what happens? Our, Our kids start asking questions, right? And Let's face it, we are not that theologically precise when it comes to these areas uh, of theology, and they're smart enough to start pointing out the inconsistencies and the imprecise use of language. Dad, you said Jesus is eternal, so he's always been a man? No, child, the Son of God has always existed. Jesus, the man, didn't exist until he was born more than 2,000 years ago. But dad, isn't Jesus the son of God? So if the son of God's always existed, then wouldn't it mean that Jesus has always existed? It's time for bed, right? There's mystery, there's tension in this doctrine, absolutely. How exactly is it that Christ is one person with two natures? How, How do they not mix? How is he just one person? How are they not distinct and unified in that? Well, mystery abounds just like the Trinity. But as J.C. Ryle reminded us, we're not going to be able to fully explain it. Curiosities will not be answered. Tensions won't be all relieved, but we have to embrace it. We have to believe it. Critical to our salvation. Now, the Apostle Paul, if you want to turn over to Philippians 2, he speaks of this same reality. And for the doctrine of the Incarnation, we will take all the apostolic help we can get in explaining this, this is a great companion passage to John 1.14. Because you have two apostles, John and Paul, both speaking of the same reality and yet both using their own spirit-inspired language. So look at Philippians 2 verse 5. <clears throat> have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, notice that similarity to John 1.1, 1, 1. the word was God. This passage clearly teaches the pre-existence of the Son of God before He entered into human history. And the text says He was existing in the form of God. That can be a confusing statement because we might think physical shape, 
Form? What's the form of God? Well, the form of God is not what it's talking about physically. God has no physical properties. God is spirit. What this is talking about is his essence, his identity, his status as God, although he was existing as God. Notice, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. Now, that's fascinating because now we're given a glimpse into the mindset of the Son of God before the manger. He possessed the fullness of, di- of divinity. All divine privileges and rights were his, but he didn't regard, he didn't think. He didn't have the attitude that this is mine. I'm going to cling to it. A thing to be grasped, Paul said. Notice the contrast. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. There's the Christmas message summed up in, in one verse. The one eternally existing as God became a man. Now, that word emptied there, if you have emptied in your version, that has resulted in a whole host of misinterpretations and wrong ideas about what's going on here. All kinds of ideas about Christ losing something, uh, pouring something out, emptying himself of something that he previously had. That's not at all what's going on here. And the text makes it clear. Notice it says he emptied himself. Not that he emptied himself of something. So the question when we come to Philippians 2 is not what did the Son of God get rid of when he became a man? The question is nothing. The word empty, rather, means to render void, to negate oneself. If you have an NIV or an ESV, it says something like this. He made himself nothing. Or King James, he made himself of no reputation. And the text tells us how he did this. Notice, by taking the form of a bondservant, a slave. Form there, again, is not referring to physical properties. He didn't look like a slave. Form of a slave means his identity. He existed as one to do the will of another, the Father. Right? I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who, who sent me. So he took on the form of a slave, And thereby, what's Paul saying here? He made himself nothing by adding humanity to himself. He made himself nothing by becoming flesh. It's subtraction by addition. The text doesn't say he ceased to be God. He changed from one thing to another. He stopped being God, became man instead. No, without ever abandoning who he's always been, he added humanity to himself. Here's a statement by Wayne Grudem that I think is helpful. The eternal Son of God took to himself a truly human nature. And Christ's divine and human natures remain distinct. They retain their own properties, and yet they're eternally and inseparably united together in one person. Remaining what he was, truly divine, he became what he was not, truly human. So Paul says it this way, he emptied himself by becoming, by being made in the likeness of men. Turning back to our passage in John 1, 14, the word became flesh. This is the embodiment of the word. That moves us secondly this morning to the existence of the word, the existence of the word. This is the next clause there in verse 14, and dwelt among us. So the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Son of God entered human history and had an earthly, historical existence. The divine Word took on human flesh and lived 
It literally took up his residence among us. This shows us that he didn't just appear from heaven for a few minutes and leave. It also shows us that he came to where people were. He didn't go to some uninhabited location. He came and dwelt among us. And there's a great significance to this word dwelt. I want you to look over at Revelation 21 where we can see John uses the same language. But there it's in the new heavens and the new earth. So notice Revelation 21. <clears throat> Revelation 21.3 Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea and I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling, there's the word, the dwelling of God is among men. He will dwell, same word that is in our passage, He will dwell among them and they shall be His people. God Himself will be among them. John just can't get over it. He just keeps repeating himself. The dwelling of God is among men. He'll dwell among them. God Himself will be among them. It's so unfathomable. He just keeps repeating it. What's being taught here? What's the reality of that? Well, look at verse 22. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. A temple indicates I've got to go to a particular location to be close to God, to be near God, to, to worship God, but not in the eternal state. The presence of the Lord will be limitless and approximate, always near, always near. He will dwell near and among his people. Well, back to John 1.14, this is the language that John uses in the incarnation. And he dwelt among us. Now, we, we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us. So, and so in that sense, this principle is fulfilled. But with regard to a physical dwelling among us, we got a preview in the incarnation. That's a preview of the eternal state, a foreshadowing of the eternal state where God will physically dwell among his people. By the way, that should have been the expectation of Israel, God dwelling with us. Is that not in the, the classic Christmas passages we turn to in the Old Testament? Isaiah seven fourteen. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And Matthew picks that up. Matthew 1, 23, connects it with the birth of Christ to fulfill that very passage. And so the Word became flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ a little more than 2,000 years ago. We've seen the embodiment of the Word, the existence of the Word. That brings us thirdly to the esteem, the esteem of the Word. Notice the rest of verse 14. And we saw His glory. Glory as, a, as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. We saw his glory, John says, probably referring to the apostolic circle, first and foremost. We know it can't be referring to everyone, all people in general at that time. Why? Not everyone had that response. Not everyone esteemed the word this way. Not everyone made that assessment. Many just saw a man, an ordinary, common, insignificant man, just like today. Many just see a baby in a manger. Or best case scenario, they see a good moral teacher. He lived a really 
exemplary life that we would do well to follow. He taught some really uh, profitable moral principles. There were many like that when he was on earth who evaluated him that way, but there was no glory that they were beholding. Not so for John and the apostolic circle and all believers. In Christ there is glory. We saw his glory. What's he talking about there? Well, I think he's talking about the same thing he says back in 1 John 1.1. So flip over to John 1.1 again. Same word is used. Very similar idea contextually here. 1 John 1.1. Notice what he says. What was from the beginning... What we have heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we've looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John, why did you repeat the one about sight twice? All right, notice that again. What we've seen with our eyes and what we've looked at. That seems unnecessarily repetitive. Well, it's not repetitive for John. When he says we've seen with our eyes, he's referring merely to physical sight. The way you and I would say, I saw him with my own two eyes. That's what he means with that phrase. That next phrase, what we've looked at, that's a different verb. That's the word back in our passage, and it's referring to looking at with the eyes of the heart, beholding, looking beyond what you're seeing physically and seeing the spiritual reality behind it. How did they see it? In what way? What is the glory that they saw? What did the apostles see? Well, in his miracles, in his message, in his ministry, in his death, one author puts it well. We saw his love, his mercy, his wisdom, his knowledge, his power, his justice, his holiness, his compassion, his omnipotence, his omniscience, his anger, his wrath, his kindness, his patience. We saw it all. This is one of the fundamental differences between Christians and everyone else when it comes to Jesus we see who he really is. We see the glory of Christ. On your way back to John, stop off at 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3. Notice verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see Now, is this physical sight? Notice, what can't they see? The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They can see Jesus in a manger. They can see Joseph and Mary. They can even see Jesus on a cross. But they can't see the glory of Christ. They can't look at those things and think of those things and see the infinite perfections, the beauty of the magnificence, the majesty of Christ. And notice, it's a culpable blindness in verse 4. They are unbelieving, the minds of the unbelieving, and Satan comes and serves as a catalyst to further that unbelief, to make sure it stays that way. They're a culpable victim when it comes to their suppression of who Christ is. If you don't see glory when you consider the person and work of Christ Jesus, the God of this age has blinded you. The God of this age is blinding you because there is glory to behold. That's what it means to be lost while still acknowledging Christmas. It's blindness, not to historical facts about Jesus, but the theological glories revolving around those historical facts. 
What's the difference with Christians? Verse 6. For God, who said light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who's shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. If you see a glorious, divine Savior and Lord when you look at Jesus, then verse 6 has happened to you. Because naturally, you'd never do that. Naturally, you'll do whatever it takes, and the God of this age will do whatever it takes to blind you to the glories of Christ. It may not show up in being hostile to Christ. Satan's perfectly content to just let you be indifferent. Just be indifferent. Back to our passage in John 1.14. There is glory to behold in the Son of God and those who have been given spiritual eyes to see with the eyes of the heart. They see it. We saw His glory. Notice that. His glory. The Son has glory in Himself. Inherent glory. Why? Because He's God. Otherwise, John could never say that. That that is consistent with what we know is true in the Incarnation. Jesus didn't give up anything. He didn't give give up what was intrinsically true about Him. He has glory. And John saw it. But notice, it's a, it's a unique glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Now, begotten is an unfortunate translation in my opinion. It, it's ripe for misunderstanding because it can give the impression that this is referring to some point in time where the Son of God came into existence, some kind of divine procreation. It's got nothing to do with that. There's another New Testament word for begotten or born, and this isn't it. This is a word that just means unique. One of a kind, only. He is unique. He is the only one. He's in a class by himself. His glory is above everyone and everything that's not God. He possesses what no creature can lay claim to. As one pastor said, the glory that they saw in Jesus Christ was exactly the glory you would expect to see in the only one of a kind son sent by the Father. Now, we keep repeating that word glory here in verse 14. What's John referring to when he he uses that that term? Well, we know generally speaking, the glory of God is what? His intrinsic attributes. And when he's glorified, it's when those attributes go public, when they get manifested. And one of the best places to look at that relationship, Exodus 33. Let's turn back to Exodus 33 for a moment. We're going back to this passage because, as you're going to see, it's likely the backdrop It's in the background of John's writing when he's doing his gospel writing in chapter 1. Exodus 33, 17. Familiar account to us, but let's read it so we can remind ourselves of the context here. The Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. Show me who you are and what you're like. Verse 19, and he said, I, will, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. That's consistent with John 3.18, right? No one's ever seen God. Then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock, and it will come about while my glory is passing by. I'll put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. 
Well, when does this happen? Skip ahead to chapter 34, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in, now focus in on these two, loving kindness and truth, because he develops these two, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet, and here's the development of the truth part, he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Moses asks to see God's glory. God grants his request, passes by, gives him a glimpse of of his attributes. Here's what I'm like. Here's how I act based on what I'm like. But did you notice the tension that comes out in verse 6? Again, Exodus 34. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, Great. Amen. We love that part. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. (laughs) Which is it? Right? Are you gracious or just? Are you a God of grace and mercy or a God of holiness and justice? It can't be both, at least to our fallen and finite minds. Well, the answer is it's not either or. It's a both and. But how? How is that not a contradiction? Well, draw your attention again to those two terms at the end of verse 6, loving kindness and truth. Loving kindness is a very rich Old Testament word. It's emphasizing the Lord's covenant loyalty, faithfully committed to doing doing good to those he set his favor upon. One author captured the meaning of this term very well. He writes this, a profound love matched with a tenacious, stubborn commitment to the object of one's love. That is the Lord for you if you're a believer, right? A a profound love matched with a tenacious, stubborn commitment to the object of one's love. The word for truth here is indicating several things about the Lord. He's reliable. He's truthful. His promises are certain. He's true to himself, true to his word, true to his character, And so what's the significance of these two words? Because loving kindness doesn't show up in the New Testament, does it? But the word grace does. And grace is the New Testament counterpart to that rich Old Testament word. And truth does show up in the New Testament in many places. And now you're probably recognizing the parallel between Exodus 34 and John 1.14. So turn back to John 1. Notice all the similarities here with what just went on in that Exodus passage. The glory of God being revealed. There's the mention of Moses coming up here in John 1.17. Moses was the main character there in the Exodus account. But more so, the parallel between what the Lord emphasized to Moses in Exodus and what John says he saw in the glory of Christ. Notice how John goes on to qualify this glory. End of verse 14. Full of grace and truth. In Old Testament language, full of loving kindness and truth. So what the Lord revealed to Moses all the way back in Exodus 34, God becomes a man, the apostles see his glory, and they say, full of grace and truth. The glory of the Son is the glory of the Father because they are the singular God, Yahweh. 
Jesus came from the Father, full of grace and truth. We saw his glory. The two attributes, the two characteristics that shone forth most brilliantly were grace and truth. Why is that? Because those who were worthy of his wrath, deserving of his wrath, he not only withheld what they rightly deserved, mercy, he gave them what they didn't deserve, grace, eternal life. That's what grace is, undeserved, unmerited favor from God affecting powerful results in the lives of his people. But grace is never at the expense of truth, God's truthfulness, his faithfulness to himself. Full of grace, but not at the expense of truth. If it's not both, then we have a God who either forgives sin or punishes it. It can't be both. But in the person and work of Christ Jesus, both of these are true. The guilty are punished because he takes their place, their sins are placed on him, and he forgives and shows compassion, and he's gracious to sinners. John Piper writes this, When Christ died, God was true to himself because sin was punished. And when Christ died, he was gracious to us because Christ bore the punishment we deserve full of grace and truth. So notice, when John thinks of the incarnation, the word becoming flesh, when he thinks of Christmas and the theology, notice what he emphasizes. Notice what occupies his mind. We, We love the historical narrative and the details. Those are essential. Those are critical. But as believers, we don't limit it there. We, we, we also include the theology behind those historical details as John helps us to here. So we've seen the embodiment of the word, the existence of the word, the esteem of the word, and next week we're going to continue in this passage and we're going to look at the eminence of the word, the essence of the word, and then the exposition of the word. Well, let's pray as we close. <clears throat> Father, we have looked at such profound truths this morning in the word becoming flesh one that stretches our mental capacities to the max and yet one that is also critical to our salvation we have tried to go as far as you revealed in your word so as not to stop short or go beyond what you revealed and we have come to the wall of worship the wall that we can't pass or explain what is beyond it's simply the wall that we come to in humble faith and embrace what you have revealed. We marvel at the profundity on the one hand of the statement, the word became flesh, and the simplicity on the other hand. And may this doctrine not promote speculation in your people, but worship and gratitude as we deepen our understanding of the Son of God becoming one of us to save us. It's in his name we pray, amen.